Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, a long-expected party celebrating the Lord of the Rings films nigh 20 years hence. Usually, we work through the films, one scene at a time, but this is some other devilry. The story of Middle-earth is deeply tied to the bonds of fellowship our characters hold, and we want to do episodes that allow us to delve greedily into them to show their quality. Well, here's one dwarf she won't ensnare so easily. I have the eyes of a hawk and the ears of a fox. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is One Dwarf Yet Who Still Draws Breath, an analysis and discussion of Gimli, son of Glowin. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. So as I alluded to in the previous episode, um, we need to have a necessary, if not exactly, uh, happy discussion about the relationship between uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic tropes, and Tolkien's dwarves. Um, This is going to be something of a long and and somewhat gloomy discussion, but I I, I think um, I speak for both myself and Manu when I say that it probably wouldn't really be right to to go through uh, this uh, body of work in such depth and, and not deal with this. Um, one of the first things that um, I would like to start out with um, by to, to sort of lay the foundation of this uh, conversation is that we need to think of some of Tolkien's body of work as something that is dynamic and ever-changing and, and not static and complete, um, at least as long as he was alive and as long as Christopher Tolkien was still releasing additional notes uh, from his work. Many of the things most associated with Tolkien, like, for example, the Silmarillion, uh, were actually published posthumously by his son Christopher. And um, that does not mean that they don't reflect Tolkien's views at various points in his life, but we need to be aware that, like, our chronology of his work is often different to his chronology. Tolkien often changed his mind on various elements of the legendarium, and in the Tolkien canon, there are myriad conflicts and inconsistencies. That's necessarily going to be the case when one person is working on such an expansive piece of work for essentially their entire lives. That said, and I do want to be extremely clear here, just because Tolkien changed his takes on some things does not necessarily mean he changed for the better. In a rather lower stakes example than the one we're going to be dealing with in this episode, in the later years of Tolkien's life, he started to respond to the more scientifist criti- uh, critics of The Lord of the Rings by attempting to add hard numbers and statistics to his stories. The, effect of, the effects of that are most visible in the most recent entry into the History of Middle-Earth series, which features some truly incomprehensible babble about miles and distance and tectonic plate movements. It's all Star Trek techno babble and it sucks. Although I guess 
this kind of gives like a more fulsome effect to the world he created. It also represents a like relatively discombobulated move away from an emphasis on the narrative purpose of the legendarium. Nothing is added to the stories or the world really by adding numbers. It just indulges people who can't do a little bit of suspension of disbelief. All that said, Tolkien did in fact change his tune on the dwarves after the very anti-Semitic nature of their portrayal in The Hobbit was made clear to him. That response comes in the form of Gimli. Now, Gimli is a lovely character and a brilliant addition to the Fellowship, but in many ways he also represents a second side of the anti-Semitic coin, which we will deal with. Before going any further, it's really important that we define our terms so that we're all on the same page moving forward. There's a lot of murkiness around the definition of anti-Semitism, particularly here in the UK where I live, and conversations surrounding that definition are often fraught and are, at the best of times, almost impossible to conduct in a sensible manner. Popularly, anti-Semitism is defined as a hatred or of or discrimination against Jewish people. In many ways, this is a perfectly acceptable working definition for your average example of anti-Semitism. Most acts of anti-Semitic violence are just that, Jew-hating violence. But anti-Semitism is actually a far more multi-layered phenomenon than just explicit acts of violence. It is a very specific racial ideology that has many faces and many presentations. For the purpose of this podcast, we're going to use the following definition. Anti-Semitism is the underlying assumption that there is something about Jews, biologically and psychologically, that marks them as fundamentally different from the Christian cultures that have been dominant in Europe since the Middle Ages. On the face of it, this can, of course, just mean the racial taxonomies of the 19, uh, 1930s uh, German laws known as the Nuremberg Laws, um, and these go hand in hand with the aggressive appearance-based forms of anti-Semitism, which posit that Jews have hooked noses, dark beady eyes, horns on their head, and red, coarse, curly hair, often called a Jufro in pop culture. There are also the personality-based tropes. Jews, according to anti-Semites, are greedy, scheming, and slick. These are the negative tropes. But these are not the only types of discrimination and dehumanization that make up anti-Semitism. There is a secondary branch of anti-Semitism that, while less discussed, is no less insidious in its nature. That branch is called philo-Semitism. Philo-Semitism fetishizes Judaism and Jewish people, taking many of the popular negative tropes surrounding Jewish people and painting them in a more positive light. Instead of saying that Jewish people are all greedy, fast-talking lawyers and bankers out to rob the common man, Philo-Semites uphold Jewish people as entrepreneurial, economical, shrewd, exceedingly polite and charismatic, talented, hardworking, and skilled beyond the norm. For many people, this quite reasonably sounds like a complementary list of traits that it would not occur to them that this is, in fact, a form of anti-Semitism. But it is, and it is because it comes back to this foundational view that Jews are fundamentally different to quote-unquote us. The very act of saying that Jews are inherently different whether inherently different in a positive or negative sense, is an act of dehumanization and depersonalization, and is therefore an act of anti-Semitism. To taxonomize and segment out an entire group of people, no matter how kind-hearted your intentions are, is still a very, very, very bad thing. So what does this have to do with Gimli? Well, let's go back to what we know about him and the dwarves more widely. The dwarves are described as an industrious people, skilled in metal smithing and crafting. In this, their fault is greed. They simply desire too much gold, too much mithril. They are said to be hardier than any other races, secretive, stubborn, and steadfast in enmity or loyalty. Here's a quote from The Hobbit. There it is. Dwarves are not heroes, but calculating folk with a great idea of the value of money. 
Some are tricky and treacherous and pretty bad lots. Some are not, but are decent enough people like Thorin and company, if you don't expect too much. In the actual Lord of the Rings books, Gimli receives very little physical description at all, save to say that he is as stout as any dwarf could be. But I want to come back to this issue of appearance later. The dwarves are, in effect, Tolkien's introduction of anti-Semitic tropes to the Legendarium. Many critics of this interpretation argue that in Norse mythology, which is one of the largest sources Tolkien pulled from in shaping the Legendarium, dwarves are already portrayed as metalsmiths with some touches of greed. And most Norse myths, Norse myths predate sustained Scandinavian interaction with Jewish people by a century or so. Well, there is, of course, merit in problematizing these types of claims of anti-Semitism with references to history like that. And I certainly don't want to discourage people from making sure the history all aligns when making historical claims. It's also worth pointing out that Tolkien was not, in fact, Norse, but a British man living in England at the height of the empire, when anti-Semitism wasn't just endemic, it was an integral part of the culture. That, combined with Tolkien's use of Hebrew as the greatest inspiration for the creation of Khuzdal, the Dwara language, makes it hard to ignore or even deny the anti- and philo-Semitism involved in the construction of the dwarves. As to the Semitic inspirations of the Khuzdal language, here's the man himself on the topic. The dwarves, you remember, are represented as extremely secretive people and have private names in their own secret language and public names like gypsies, for therefore I gave the North actual Norse names, which are in Norse books. That's quite different. Not that the, my dwarves really are at all like the dwarves of, uh, of Norse imagination. The dwarves, of course, quite obviously, the Jews say in many ways they remind you of the Jews. All their words are Semitic, obviously, and constructed be Semitic. There's, there's a tremendous love of the, of the artifact, and of course the immense um, warlike capacity of the Jews, too, which we tend to forget nowadays. Just 10 to 15 years after Tolkien writes The Lord of the Rings, we have Stan Lieber and Jacob Kurtzberg, aka Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, starting Marvel's run of The Mighty Thor, which trades in all the same Norse and specifically Dwarvish imagery in coming up with the Nine Realms. Lee and Kirby are, of course, Jewish. I mean, part of the reason they changed their names was because of blacklisting occurring in the 30s and 40s when they were just starting out in the comics industry. While Marvel Comics of the 1960s has its own issues, many issues, you can see a case here where they are drawn from the same source without invoking any anti-Semitic imagery. I also want to address really quickly this common misconception that it is historically or politically redundant to criticize historical figures for their various bigotries because things were different then. While it is undoubtedly true that uh, things were different a century ago, it is also true that Jewish people have literally always been people and have literally always been deserving of human dignity. This misconception that the notion of treating human beings with decency is some radical new idea invented sometime around the year 1997 is, to put it mildly, fucking bizarre. Tolkien was a deeply moral man who was quite literally paid to think. He absolutely could have and should have known better. No ifs, ands, or buts. So, as we collectively discuss and think about Tolkien's dwarves, and Gimli in particular, both in the books and in the films, it's really important to keep all this context in mind. Does that mean we should ultimately boycott the books and films? I would say no, but the decision is ultimately yours. For my part, aside from being an excellent story, I think it's a fascinating historical document that merits ongoing engagement, not just for its entertainment value, but for its historical and cultural value. But as I said, the decision is ultimately yours.
Yeah, and as an adult who considers themselves thoughtful about art and who surrounds himself with people he considers the same, I want to second Emily's point about the decision being ultimately yours. We all have boundaries in terms of art. We enjoy, and those lines are ever-shifting and changing. I, as a brown man, just can't stand to watch anything these days that does the are they or aren't they a terrorist thing with brown or Muslim characters. And I find the oh, they were a good Muslim all along storytelling every bit as odious as them being depicted as terrorists, which is almost an analog to the philosemitism that Emily was talking about earlier. But this is a line I've come to in the last six or seven years, as our forever wars against the Muslim world continue unabated. But that didn't stop younger me from being obsessed with 24 or True Lies or even the first couple seasons of Homeland. So I am perfectly comfortable with everyone putting up their own lines for what they do and do not find enjoyable or acceptable to watch, appreciate, what have you. And I think in the current climate, a declaration of I find this icky or problematic or racist can be weaponized. A lot of times they can very much that can very much be the case, but I'm not making a prescriptive declaration that everyone should meet it in the same way. And I'm also not trying to cancel anything. Giving voice to these criticisms is simply raising awareness about how material can be interpreted. It is not a referendum on the value of the work as a whole or necessarily an indication of what the creator or the people who enjoy it are like. And this probably has no place in this discussion, but also I feel like it should be reiterated ad nauseum that anti-Semitism is often, especially in the U.S. and the U.K., weaponized against brown people, uh, Muslims and specifically Palestinians, especially if they criticize the settler state of Israel. Acknowledging apartheid and the subhuman treatment of Palestinians is not anti-Semitism, nor is calling for a free Palestine. Sorry, I know that has little to do with the topic at hand, but a key part of what I believe is that we must always show solidarity to our oppressed brothers and sisters, and frankly, in politics and in media, there is just too little solidarity shown to Palestinians, and most institutions in the Anglosphere actively worsen the military occupation of Palestinian lands. Now, we need to deal with some of the more heinous <laughs> examples of anti-Semitism in the Legendarium and some of them that appear in both the Lord of the Rings films and the Hobbit films. The first and most obvious of these is Moria. The cardinal sin of the dwarves is ever delving too deeply and too greedily, and Moria is basically the culmination of this. The dwarves, as a race, are so inherently and intrinsically greedy that they literally awoke a servant of the devil. It's really hard to not look at this as something that has some pretty anti-Semitic overtones. And though I don't necessarily think there's especially interesting to discuss here, it exists, it sucks, but that's basically it. I just want to recognize it here because it does merit saying, particularly because of how favored the Lord of the Rings is by Nazis worldwide. The next bit <laughs> is an entire book. Um, and I'm just going to preface this by saying I hate The Hobbit. Um, and it's not out of like a principled opposition to it slightly worrying overtones, though I wish I could say it was. Um, I really just find it a painful read. Uh, for those who are only familiar with the films, which is fine, um, even though I do feel bad because what an awful movie series to be acquainted with, it might come as a surprise to you to learn that there's not half as much cheerful pally energy between the characters in the book as there is in the films. 
The book, while absolutely a children's story, features slightly grimmer, sterner characters, and I've just never jived with it in the same way that I have with the Lord of the Rings books or even with the Silmarillion. So in my ongoing pursuit of doing as little work as humanly possible, I'm going to throw it over to Manu to summarize for us. Put me in, coach. I'm ready. Uh, The main point of The Hobbit is the quest to retake the Lonely Mountain, also known as Erebor. Gandalf, who is so often the meddler who starts these quests, knows that the company of Thorin Oakenshield, the would-be king under the mountain, is in dire need of a burglar to join his D&D party. Gandalf then comes to the Shire. There, he convinces Bilbo Baggins to join the quest, and off they all go, through hill and dale, to the Lonely Mountain. On the way, they encounter some trolls, some people can turn into bears, and some people who can't turn into bears, some elves, and eventually a dragon. Thorin Oakenshield, the leader of our merry band of travelers, succumbs to something called gold sickness, a disease of the mind triggered by a uh, lust for money and riches. Hmm. Standing at the precipice of an enormous battle, quite literally a battle of five armies, Thorin is paralyzed by his overwhelming desire for gold. His greed could ultimately be the thing to stand in the way of success in the face of evil. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is just incredibly overt. Um, And between, you know, the whole plot of The Hobbit and the quote that I pulled earlier, uh, it's really hard for me to to look at this and not be like, oh, what the fuck, dude? Yeah, and I wonder if part of uh, because I'm at this point, sadly, more familiar with the Hobbit films than I am the book. And they called it dragon sickness in the film, which um, I think it still speaks to the same thing. So I'm not going to give them credit for that, but it at least definitely doesn't come off as overtly anti-Semitic as gold sickness does. Yeah, yeah, it's like a bandaid over the bullet hole there. (laughs) Scholars differ on the extent to which Tolkien had a come to Jesus moment over his portrayal of dwarves in light of World War II. Remember that The Hobbit was Hobbit was published in 1937, and while anti-Semitism was rife in Europe and elsewhere, there wasn't exactly a concerted push by the British establishment, literary, political, or otherwise, to push back on it. However, it is pretty clear that there is a notable change in the portrayal of dwarves, most evident in one dwarf in particular. Let them come! Okay, so we're not quite out of the weeds with the heaviness of the anti-Semitism chat just yet, and the reason is because Gimli himself is actually a fascinating entry into this canon. I said at the top that Tolkien's legendarium really needs to be taken as a body of work that represents one man's entire life, so there will naturally be changes in edits. Gimli is one of the starkest examples of this because of what his portrayal does to the rather awful portrayal of the dwarves in The Hobbit. Like, for starters, he's one of the most gung-ho members of the quest for the ring. And it should be noted that this quest in particular has no personal or financial gain involved for Gimli. Whereas Thorin's company wanted to retake Arabor and reclaim their lost riches, Gimli is going on the most altruistic of altruistic quests. Gimli is also one of the more cultured members of the Fellowship. When he enters Moria, unlike his forefathers in Erebor, his interest lies entirely in the cultural value of it. He talks about Mithril, but only ever in terms of its value in connecting different cultures. He's really not interested in the financial element of it. So, with that uh, brief insight into Gimli's character, we can get into some of Gimli's biography. Gimli, son of Glowin, or Gloin, Uh, who is one of the descendants of King Nain II and, by extension, Durin. He was born in the year 2879 of the Third Age, about a century after Smog took Erebor, and was born in the Blue Mountains, or the Arid Luin, just north and west of the Shire. 
Though Thorin's Halls was in the Blue Mountains and was a relatively stable settlement for the dwarves, all throughout Gimli's life, there was a strong diasporic sense to Dwero culture, which basically makes sense given what Tolkien is drawing on for his inspiration for the dwarf cultures. Though Gimli was 62 when Thorin's company set out on the quest to the Lonely Mountain, he was actually deemed too young to go with them. (laughs) We don't have a huge amount of information about Gimli's life before the Council of Elrond, and unfortunately, unlike Boromir, there's not really enough ancillary information about him in the various secondary texts to piece much more together. What we do know is that in the year 3017, Gimli witnessed Sauron's message offering an alliance with the dwarves. Yeah, and here we should pause to actually chat about that message and what it means for the story. So as we briefly touched on a couple episodes ago, um, the uh, a messenger of Sauron um, arrived to uh, to Gimli's people, uh, to Thorin's folk, um, with an offer of an alliance and also uh, a request to divulge information about the location of Bilbo Baggins, who was the last known ring bearer. Um, and uh, Thorn, Thorn's folk, uh, led by Gloin, um, and also by Gimli in a secondary sense, uh, basically said no and immediately ran off to speak to Al- Elrond Half-Elven, which is how they coincidentally end up uh, in Rivendell in time for um, the uh, convening of the Council of Elrond. Um, and, and, and this in particular does, does two really important things. Um, one, it raises, again, the issue of Bilbo and his various friendships. Um, One of the significant underlying messages of Lord of the Rings is alliance building and unity while maintaining differences. Um, Tolkien's not like some no borders, no nations guy. Uh, He very, very strongly believes in maintaining like the difference between cultures. Um, But even as those cultures remain like strongly like delineated. So he's like, you know, a firmly like English or British identity, a firmly French identity, but they gang up together to fight the Nazis. Um, He does not think that we should get rid of borders. Um, and this is basically perfectly exemplified by Bilbo's relationship to the, the dwarves. And um, Bilbo goes on this life-altering quest with these dwarves, but when he go- goes home, it's not like he's really learned anything about the culture they have or what benefits or drawbacks there are to their way of life. He goes back to the sh- Shire, and yes, he's a little weird, but it's not like he's this beacon of cultural transmission. And the dwarves, of course, also don't really change anything for their interaction with Bilbo or their much longer-term interactions with the elves. And then there is the secondary issue, which I brought up in, I think, last episode, uh, which is the kind of externality of the dwarves from, like, the normal morality of Tolkien's Legendarium. Um, Basically, because the dwarves weren't really created by God in this universe, they are somehow uh, not exempt but not inherently involved with the moral system. So there's a little bit of like trickiness and a little bit of like um, anarchy or like entropic energy introduced to the moral system by their very existence. Yeah, that's wild to think about now, especially everything we've already talked about, because I actually got, you know, a little bit emotional the last time I reread the Council of Elrond and hearing uh, glow and talk about how um, they sent that messenger from Mordor away um, and they instantly went to seek help, uh, you know, talk to Alrond um, just because, you know, I I don't have a lot of this baggage with the dwarves. So I just assumed they were kind of good. I had never really contextualized them as outside of the moral system until Emily enlightened me. Um, so it's just like, oh, yeah, that's a that's a good show of hero ship. Um, but I also don't have the Hobbit rattling around in my head where <laughs> Tolkien calls him specifically not heroic in that sense. So um, I did think that was a cool bit at the Council of Alrond where um, Glowin uh, relays the story of, I think it was a Nazgul, right? Or they just yeah, say a black rider or a hooded yeah. rider. 
um, came to uh, Erebor and talked to Dane, I believe it was. Um, and then Dane kind of just sent him on his way. And then all these various other envoys were sent out. Gimli is not quite an elder statesman of the dwarves, but he is much older than all the hobbits, and though the dwarves are significantly cloistered as people, his people's ancient links to the elves actually helps to box the hobbits out even more. If the dwarves are considered the isolationists of Middle-earth, and the rest of Middle-earth doesn't even know of the hobbits, we get a much better sense of just how separated the hobbits are. It's true you don't see many dwarf women, and in fact, they are so alike in voice and appearance... <laughs> that they're often mistaken for dwarf men. It's the beards. And this in turn has given rise to the belief that there are no dwarf women. And the dwarfs just spring out of holes in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, of course, ridiculous. <laughs> uh, and we're not going to expand on the gender politics of that clip. And instead, we're going to talk about Legolas and Gimli's Lads, Lads, Lads tour. Um, and this is the intro to our start of the After the War uh, section of this podcast. Um, and in our last character episode, we didn't get to do it. So I'm really going to make the most of it here. Um, to give you a bit of book context, um, while uh, the three hunters are walking through Fangorn Forest, um, Legolas begins to lament how beautiful the forest must have been when it wasn't bowed under the might of both Saruman and Sauron's influence. Gimli, in return says that he would travel to Fangorn once their com their quest was complete, so long as Legolas comes with him to the glittering caves behind Helm's Deep. And in the end, they actually do do that. It's their beautiful little world tour after the end of the war. Once that's done, Gimli sets up a colony of dwarves within the glittering caves. He becomes like the lord of the glittering caves, and Legolas sets up a colony of sylvan elves in Athelion. But they do have this beautiful kind of lads Euro tour in between where they kind of reestablish themselves as people independent of the war. And it's just the two of them hanging out and um, loads of insane people insist that that is like not a homoerotic thing. And they're all fucking crazy and liars. Um, but eventually... Um, in the year 120 of the Fourth Age, when Aragorn dies, sorry, I'm not going to say this with a smile on my face, I'm going to force myself to not smile. In the year 120 of the Fourth Age, Aragorn dies. <laughs> um, and then Legolas and Gimli decide uh, that Middle-earth basically holds nothing for them anymore, um, and they're not really interested in being a part of it. Um, and Legolas somehow manages to finagle passage for Gimli to Valinor, um, and he is literally the only dwarf to ever receive this honor, so it's actually kind of likely that Galactic Adriel intervened in some way or another because she was so charmed by him. And this is one of my favorite friendships in, in the book and in the canon. Um, and I think um, given that we know that the reason that mortals can't access uh, Valinor is because Eru uh, Iluvatar uh, turned the earth into a sphere, um, and for the elves it's non-spherical, it is incredibly funny to, for me to think about how shit scared Gimli must have been sailing to Valinor when he was like, the earth is definitely round. I don't know how we're going to get there. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Maybe I'm just going to fall off the plane. Um, but it is lovely and delightful. Uh, the elves are flat earthers, I see. <laughs> um, but no, that's fun. I, I like the homoerotic tension between Legolas and Gimli. I'm sure historians just said they were really good friends, <laughs> um, you know, holding each other's hands and hugging. But um, I think uh, I think we can confirm that it's pretty much canon that they were, you know, a couple together because I think all that work they did in the Hobbit movies about setting up the dwarf Keeley with uh, 
I forget what uh, Evangeline Lilly's elf's name is, but that kind of showed us what was possible and paved the way for like oh, and Gimli God. in my eyes. I completely forgot about that as well. I totally forced that out of my head. Oh. I forgot about it too until oh. these thoughts about Legolas and Gimli just pushed them right back in. Oh boy. Oh, that's grim. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing is like, um, the, the movies punch this up a bit more, I think to great effect, to quite interesting effect. Um, but like the friendship between Legolas and Gimli is only mirrored, um, a couple of times in uh in in the history of middle earth one is by uh narvi uh, the dwarf and Celebrimbor the elf um i think there's like uh one or two other like Madras has like a, a dwarf pal but i can't remember his name but uh, all of those kind of preceding relationships um are very much um uh, about kind of like bringing out the worst in one another like um, Tolkien kind of posits it as like bringing out the worst racial traits in one another and um, like the dwarves kind of punching up the like greediness and the elves and the elves kind of punching up the like war uh like the vainglory I guess of the dwarves um but Legolas and Gimli are very much the opposite of that like they both kind of help each other and um, in this like renewing of the earth after the end of the war they're both um in the books, at least, they're both people who are like, or characters who are very, very concerned with like the natural beauty of the world around them and without like, with like the care and protection of their friends and with like, um, kind of tr- like cross cultural transmission. Um, and, and I think that is like a, a really lovely, uh, little kind of, uh, subtext to, or not even subtext, just straight up text to, to their character arcs and, and to Gimli's in particular. Um, and even with all the kind of like unsavory, uh, undertones to, uh, to Gimli's character and, and to the doors generally, I think there is that kind of, um, uh, just kind of like unambiguously nice element to, to what he is. He is very much like a diplomat. Come Gimli, we're gaining on them. I'm wasted on cross country. We dwarves are natural sprinters. Very dangerous over short distances. So now we're going to talk about Gimli's movie history, or at least how he's adapted for the films. And I want to speak to Gimli as the fantasy dwarf archetype, or archetype. I guess I've only read that word. I've never had to say it before. (laughs) In talking about the various races of Middle-earth in these films, we've noted how classical they are in depiction. The wizards, for example, with their staffs and orbs and casting spells across mountain ranges is textbook sorcery. Gimli is no different as a representative for the dwarves, though with basically all the caveats about racial underpinnings that we discussed for the first 20 minutes or so today. Maybe the most classical thing about Gimli is that he's an axe wielder, something that's a bit of a trope amongst dwarvish characters. In A Game of Thrones, Tyrion Lannister, who is a quote-unquote dwarf as in a little person, not a separate race, also uses an axe the first time he's in combat and then continues to do so. I believe it's explained in terms of weight and balance being more appropriate than most blades would be for someone of his size. In these films, Gimli has several axes he uses throughout the adventure. A bearded axe, meaning a blade where the axe blade extends far below, throwing axes, a battle axe, a double-bladed axe which also doubles as a walking or resting stick for the character. And another famous trapping of film Gimli is his stone helm, which you probably heard me rave about on our previous episode. Uh, He is seen wearing this most of the time that he's on screen, and there's not much else to say about it because, again, I said everything there was possible to say about it in our previous ep. Yeah, I I feel like uh, involved in all these things, um, and maybe this is a bit of like a, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail moment for me, but um, uh, the fact of Gimli Scottishness in these films 
I feel like I have to address uh, and not just because I have like spent an unreasonable amount of time dealing with like the history of uh, the Scottish nation in particular, (laughs) but uh, all right, like, here we go. Uh, So uh, Scottishness and like the, the dwarves, the fantasy dwarves uh, does not actually have as long of a history uh, as you might think, as you might guess. Um, so far as I can tell, the popularization of it um, is actually kind of a two-pronged thing. Um, at least like with like nerd culture and like fantasy interested people, fantasy fans, I guess. Um, the kind of Scottish dwarves trope picks up for the first time with a 1961 edition of uh, I don't know if it is D and D itself or if it's like a precursor game to D and D. But there is a, a like a story, like a little like a blurb i guess and in, in one of the uh, rule books where they definitely play to the scottishness of dwarves i don't know why it's like such a drive-by shooting kind of thing but whatever there is um, and then the second kind of uh, uh perpetuation of like dwarves as scots is actually the lord of the rings films uh, and and is gimli himself um and and so you know between those two the this kind of trope is actually really only 50 years old uh now i will out and out say uh, this is probably a good thing because at least it's starting to move it away from the anti-semitic uh tropes uh that kind of foregrounded uh a lot of the uh portrayals of dwarves in, in fantasy um before that <laughs> but i do also feel obligated to point out that um a lot of these uh, anti-Semitic tropes are also like uh, anti-Presbyterian uh, stereotypes, and they're also kind of like anti-Gale, like like, uh, like Highlanders, Gaelic-speaking uh, Highlanders uh, in Scotland stereotypes. Uh, so you get like you know, for anti-Semitic tropes, it's uh, Jewish people are greedy, um, and for like stereotypes about Scottish people, it's Scottish people are tight. Um, and there's like the hardiness element, and then there's the element for like the anti-Gale Highlander stuff, anti-Highlander stuff that they like all live in like mud huts uh, and and you know dress in rags and and survive like out in the cold and the rain for uh 365 days a year uh and my friends from the highlands insist this is not true though i have not necessarily seen any evidence otherwise uh, sorry guys um but basically uh there's this kind of funny element of like uh, for those who aren't aware, there is a really awful and like deeply evil uh, element of like sectarianism and Scottish society, and is predominantly well, not predominantly, is Protestants against Catholics and typically Gaelic uh, speakers, and and people who live in the Highlands are Catholic, uh, and everybody else uh, in the Lowlands, and people who are like broadly supported in varying ways by the British state are uh, Protestants, um, and so the like creation of the scottish dwarves uh, archetype is quite funny because it basically flattens scottish sectarianism uh, to dunk on everybody at once by being like fuck it you're all scottish people and that's how like how embarrassing for you uh, which is fair enough <laughs> like like you're right there is something deeply cringe about being scottish uh, uh i'm <laughs> terribly sorry to all my scottish boss um but uh it is interesting to see especially in the context of these films um where gimli's Scottishness is is kind of uh, used to cover but not change any of the anti-Semitic tropes that underpin Gimli's character. Um, as I like mentioned up at the top, um, Gimli doesn't actually get like a physical description in the book. So like going for the red coarse curly hair, 
um, is definitely like you will, you, you know, you can go into the tat shops like on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh and you will see hats that like sell uh, those fucking awful hats with the like red wig beneath them and the like stick on beard. Um, and so that is like true of like Scottish stereotypes, but is also first and foremost true of anti-Semitic stereotypes. Um, and a lot of the, the sort of uh, dwarves are like tight uh, and... Uh, they're not. Uh, they're not maybe necessarily the most most forthcoming or like uh, most polite. And I think it's probably not unfair to say that Gimli is portrayed as being kind of vegan esque. Um, those are covered over in the films by just being like, all right, he's Scottish instead, um, and it kind of becomes this crutch for the filmmakers. Um, instead of just getting rid of the anti-Semitic stereotypes, instead of just being like, this is a horrible idea, we're not going to do it. Uh, they're just like, all right, we're just making fun of Scottish people, which is a campaign I support broadly, but not necessarily in this case, because I think it is uh, basically uh, waffling. Um, but I also think it is interesting in comparison to the only other kind of uh, significant Scottish voice we hear in uh, in the Lord of the Rings films, which is, of course, uh, Pippin. Um and uh, Pippin is very much uh, kind of brought into line with the other aesthetic of the hobbits um, without feeling the need to like uh, exaggerate his Scottishness for comedic effect. Um, he looks in line, looks and behaves and sounds in line with what all of the other hobbits are doing. Um, so it is possible to have Scottishness as kind of a hinge point of a character uh, or, or like perceptions of Scottishness as a hinge point of a character uh, without needing to kind of play into uh, other stupid things, uh, namely the overlap between the Scottish stereotypes and the anti-Semitic tropes, if that makes sense. No, it does. Honestly, uh, I I don't have context for almost any of that. <laughs> Everything I know about uh, Scotland, I learned from Braveheart, yeah, um, which I now realize is probably something I should force Emily to watch for a podcast <laughs> episode so, so that she can go fully unhinged on Scotland and its history. And meanwhile, I can talk about how the battles are probably formative to how Peter Jackson created the battles for Lord of the Rings. So I'm going to put that one in the back pocket because I think it might be applicable, you know, trigger ooh, warning ooh. for Mel Gibson aside. Yeah. Oh, boy. I thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf. What about side by side with a friend? I could do that. So next, we want to talk about Gimli's relationship with Legolas. Gimli and Legolas's relationship has a lot of grounding in Tolkien's text itself, but I do think Rhys Davies and Orlando Bloom translate it well to the screen, albeit less deep and more comical than its book counterpart. I will talk about Gimli as a comic relief vehicle here in a second, but his friendly rivalry turned bestiedom with the elf warrior is generally considered one of the more endearing parts of the film trilogy. Not a few weeks ago, we got to discuss Gimli going full anti-elf discrimination at the Council of Elrond, <laughs> and he'll continue to do so as the party enters Lothlorien a couple weeks from now. Galadriel has a transformative effect on Gimli, and his tune changes quite a bit thereafter, though this impact is mostly shown in the extended editions and is better developed in the book themselves. In The Two Towers and Return of the King, he still feuds with Legolas in a friendly manner, but perhaps with slightly less elf prejudice, even if he didn't imagine he would die fighting alongside with one. His ongoing contest with Legolas over Kill Count is pretty funny, in a macabre sort of way, and leads to some of the funnier punchlines in the movie, namely that the Oliphant only counts as one. 
So Gimli has comic relief. In our Boromir episode, I admitted that broadly, I am okay with adaptation choices to play up certain villainies, or in Gimli's case, comic relief. I do think that's important, both in terms of an enjoyable cinematic experience, especially in a blockbuster marketed to mass audiences, and balancing out the tone of the story. While Lord of the Rings, as filmed, is not really grimdark, it is underpinned with despair. The shadow of the enemy is constantly growing, our heroes face down worse and worse odds, and the world is falling into ruin. But Lord of the Rings, the films at least, for all that, is still mirthful, joyous experience in its own way, and being humorous fits alongside that. Gimli, especially starting in The Two Towers, shifts into a comic relief role. Some of that is in part due to his screen partners. Aragorn is the self-serious would-be king protagonist, and Legolas is an otherworldly fairy. Gimli is the most grounded of the three hunters. Of those characters, giving him the most outward humor makes a ton of sense. But this is where I get to continue my pro-theatrical cut propaganda. (laughs) I think generally everything in the theatrical editions with Gimli as comic relief is fine. I enjoy his remarks about dwarves being dangerously fast sprinters, not cut out for cross-country, or that falling off a horse was deliberate. In a way, both of those jokes actually speak to something about dwarvish culture, whether it be their physicality or that they don't go into battle mounted. They are creatures of the earth, ones who perform best when both feet are firmly planted on it. Extended edition cut Gimli is where I start being less into the comic relief, perhaps most specifically during the Paths of the Dead sequence as Aragorn tries to recruit the ghost army. There's a lot more extended edition footage of them walking through the caves and over skulls to find this king under the mountain, but a lot of it is just Gimli freaking out about all the skulls and being scared, played for humor. It both undercuts the character's bravery, and in my opinion, it's not even that funny. (laughs) Which circles back a bit to our discussion about that Eowyn scene being a bad cook. This is what you're giving me in the extended editions, not the scouring of the Shire. Or for this episode, Gimli discovering the exquisite caves behind Helm's Deep, him promising to venture the world with Legolas after the war is over. Where's all that stuff? Yeah, no, no, I absolutely agree with you on this. Um, and I'm like really, really tickled and delighted that you brought up the fact that, or like the exclusion of the glittering caves and just the ongoing and overplayed skulls bullshit on the, like in the Dwemerdine. Um, because those are literally my favorite two examples of the like poor adaptive and like narrative decision making in the extended editions. Um, and to be honest, not to be too much of a Debbie Downer, like it just in the Two Towers and Return of the King uh, adaptations generally. Um, but especially when you get to Return of the King where the book itself is actually not I don't think one of the bigger ones um, I'm, I'm like looking at my bookshelf right now as if that's going to tell me and as if the like back half of Return of the King doesn't have like 500 pages of appendi- appendices and um, anyways uh, Return of the King the book doesn't actually have uh, a huge amount of like book space um, and so for me the things that are cut from Return of the King kind of sting a little more because I'm like theoretically all of this could fit in two and a half hours so when there are these like extended shots of and to be like to be fair it does pair with like excellent Foley work but like Gimli kind of wincing or whatever when he's stepping on all the skulls I'm like this could have been a moment like when we had when we could have had the far better and more interesting book version of like uh Faramir and Eowyn scene or we could have done uh some more interesting bits with like 
the field of Cormalin and the recognition of Frodo as a hero, yada, yada, yada. Um, and, I, and I feel like it kind of sucks that like for the most part, those moments where I feel like the joke goes on a bit too long and comes at the expense of other uh, narrative or like adaptational choices, um, unfortunately are all bits with Gimli. <laughs> um, and I think that's probably because they like um, over, not necessarily, well, yeah, okay. They over-focus on Gimli as comedic uh, relief uh, or comic relief rather um, and under-focus on his kind of narrative value, which means Anytime they feel like things are getting a bit heavy and they want to throw a joke in, they just throw Gimli in. And sometimes it just does not play well. Yeah. And I'm not going to make excuses for them. But like you say, I bet you a lot of it is we can when you're just adding more footage of Gimli walking through the skulls in the past of the dead, that's probably not adding too much extra cost to a production as opposed to, you know, creating a different set or anything like that. But I still think part of the reason I mean, I didn't watch the extended editions a whole ton until more recently, and I'd only read the books more recently, um, but I feel justified now in thinking that when I think of the extended editions, I want them to adapt like the chapters that they can't really get into for various reasons in the story, not just to better balance out where, they're fe- where they feel the humor versus you know despair equation is at any one moment. Yeah. Um, and you know what, actually, so um, I'm not sure, well, the, this this episode will come out uh, ho- hopefully after um, our, uh, whatever, the Power of the Rings, the War of the Rings, the Star of the Rings, fuck knows, uh, a di- teaser trailer reaction episode comes out. But one of the things that uh, we talked about in in, in that is like uh, the, the kind of like legitimacy or like the like um, ownership of one uh, adaptation to like the canon. Um, and because, and you know, Peter Jackson maybe could not, well, maybe couldn't have known this or couldn't have guessed this at the time but this is essentially the definitional take on the lord of the rings um you know there's the ralph bakshi adaptations there are a couple other like there's the wild soviet version um but this this is the one that people think of when they think of the lord of the rings on film um and so to me um I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know how to phrase this other than just like general disappointment as a fan, but I feel like there is kind of, um, as you say, like an onus to adapt those things from the books, um, because there's not really going to ever be another, they're not going to do, uh, well, I don't want to call it remakes, but they're not going to do like a secondary adaptation of the Lord of the Rings because everybody will uh, go ahead and call it a remake of the Peter Jackson films and not what it is, which is another adaptation. So since that kind of like weight, that burden is on their shoulders, they might as well. And since they've already got the fucking funding, they might as well just go film all of this stuff anyways. Um, because there's never really going to be a chance for there to be a, a second or third attempt at it. No, I think that's very valid because despite all the nits that we pick on this podcast, um, the three Lord of the Rings films are considered very definitive, are pretty much broadly acclaimed as some of you know the greatest blockbuster cinema ever to be had. So um, we're not going to see another take on the Lord of the Rings, at least a live action take. Um, I don't think anytime soon. No. And if it is, it would probably be in a different format, probably not made for, you know, three hour blockbusters or something like that. So that gives us a good opportunity to just kind of run down Gimli's biggest moments in the films themselves. Some we've kind of started talking about. Uh, he's only been with our uh, 
series like for a couple episodes now uh but that covers the whole smashing the ring at the council and uh him saying and they call it a mine as they walk <laughs> into the tomb that is moria i'm sorry i do not have a good john really <laughs> but i just love the tone that uh, gimli takes when he says that line um one of my favorites in the entire uh film series uh, the episode title today, One Dwarf in Moria Who Still Draws Breath. Uh, we dropped the in Moria because it would be kind of clunky for the episode title. Um, but that's just one of the cooler badass lines. I hate to sound like a fucking 14-year-old boy when I describe <laughs> it like that. Um, but like, if you're going to say, hey, c- you know, come and fight me in a cool Tolkien-esque way, um, that's basically as good as it gets to me. Uh, Gimli's probably most commonly associated as one of the three hunters alongside Legolas and Aragorn. And one of my favorite moments is when he comes across the Rohirrim or they come across the Rohirrim in the beginning of the Two Towers. And, you know, Eomer is like, speak, you know, tell us why you're here or else we'll think you're spies. And Gimli is like, give me your name, Horsemaster, and I will give you mine. Um, I just feel like it speaks properly to that character, his bravery and who he is. Yeah, no, no, it rocks so hard as well. And it is almost a dragged adaptation from the uh the the books i think the the only thing that they really cut from that scene um in the uh films um is uh Aymer hasn't been exiled uh because in the books he's just thrown in jail um but also uh the <laughs> aragon and Aymer do and they do this all the way throughout the books and it is both like funny and also slightly grating because it does get old after a while but they sit and they just chat shit for like an hour um, and so that you, you know you've built up all of this tension they're like desperately seeking Merry and Pippin um, and, and doing everything they can to make up their time and then Aragorn and Aramur who who apparently just meet each other like lay eyes on each other and they're like we're gonna be best friends forever sit and just chat shit for so long and this is where we discover that Sauron only steals the black horses which again not actually crucial information <laughs> like Aramur and Aragorn there are very bad things happening around you you really don't need to know about the exact like number and style of horses that are being robbed from you anyways um but one of the things they do get rid of that um i think is of equal parts funny and tragic but maybe they got rid of it because it is a bit broy um is uh, gimli and amber get into this like completely deranged ongoing argument about whether galadriel or arwen is hotter (laughs) Uh, and they don't they don't resolve it until um i think actually after the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, or maybe even during the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, um, where Gimli literally threatens to pull out his axe and cut Aomer's head off uh, because Aomer's like, not sure that Gladriel's hotter. Um, and uh, eventually, Aomer actually has like quite a slight uh, line where he's like, you know, you're... Uh, your heart may be given to the evening, referring to Gladriel and the, the kind of passing of the elves, but mine is given to the morning, um, which is uh, Arwen, the, the morning star. Um, and uh, yeah, it rocks. Um, and I, I do understand why they why they didn't keep it in, uh, but it is uh, incredibly funny. Man, I could have gone for an extended edition scene where they just debate who's hotter, Kate Blanchett or Liv Tyler. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, it would totally be, you know, the opposite of dudes rocking, I'm sure, as captured on film. But, you know, I personally would be very thankful for that scene. Uh, Gimli has a couple memorable mor- moments in Fangorn Forest as well. Um, again, these are kind of comic relief, but they kind of make sense in the sense that the guy with the axe is the one who um, the trees might be most angry at or might be 
might feel threatened by if he raises his axe while in their boundaries. So um, I like the stuff with him in um, Fangorn. I also like him, te- uh, what's it called, tasting the blood and then spitting it out and being like, well, orc blood. Um, I just really <laughs> love, um, what's it called, him doing that. <laughs> I hadn't thought of this in, until now, but now, now that you said it, it's kind of just jogged uh, my, my my memory, I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm also wondering if the... Gimli pulling the axe out bit is meant to be a reference to the Silmarillion and to the creation of the Ents, which, as uh, we covered in one of the previous episodes, uh, the Ents were brought around uh, by the uh, by request of the uh, Vala Yavanna, who was like kind of mother of mother nature, essentially, uh, who was worried about the creation of the dwarves and thought that they would cut down all of the forests and kind of destroy all of the land and the like natural beauty surrounding their settlements. Um, and so had the, the shepherds of the land, the tree herders, the ants created. Um, and, and so I wonder if Gimli immediately whipping out his axe uh, and all of the trees being like, put that the fuck away is maybe kind of meant to be a, a wink or a nod to, to that story. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and then Gimli has a series of moments with Eowyn over the cr- course of the two towers, which I will just kind of uh, set aside for now and let Emily speak about. <laughs> yeah, so so these are fun. Uh, these are both like very fun and also in some ways uh, a missed opportunity, which is maybe I think my most common uh, and at this point probably quite dull take on these films. Um, but I think the 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 ways in which they're fun um, are that uh, we get to see uh, Eowyn being smiley and happy and Theoden remarks on it to Aragorn and fuck Aragorn generally, uh, but how like how dare he look at her smile? Uh, what a dick. Um, but, but there is this lovely moment where they're um, walking as part of the caravan on the way to Helm's Deep and uh, Gimli is kind of playing up a fool uh, in a way. Uh, to entertain Eowyn and to to make her laugh and to make her smile, which is, I think, quite revealing of Gimli. And it's nice to see Eowyn smile, even though I don't necessarily think she would have been smiling. But uh, it's nice. It's a nice moment. Um, But it also introduces this uh, element of, like, gender and the dwarfs, uh, because Gimli goes into this spiel about how uh, the uh, many people, there's this common misconception that there aren't any uh, Dwarf women uh, and Eowyn cracking up turns around to look at Aragorn and Aragorn's like, it's the beards. Um, and like, you know, on the face of it, great moment. Very funny. Uh, like uh, good, good on the uptake, Aragorn, good comedic timing. Um, one of the reasons why I feel like it's kind of a missed opportunity is because this film adaptation in particular, uh, goes out of its way to play up the gendered element of Eowyn's story in a way that the books don't. Um, so in a lot of Eowyn's uh, more well-known interactions in the books, uh, certain things she says are not gendered. Um, in the films, those direct adaptations are gendered. So they will add in, you know, the example that I'm going <laughs> to harp on throughout this podcast is uh, in the Houses of the Healing after the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, um, when Eowyn is appealing to the Warden of the Houses of Healing to let her go to the Black Gate to fight because she wants to die. Um she says, uh, sorry, and I'm re- reciting this uh, from memory, so if I get it slightly wrong, I get it slightly wrong, and my apologies. But she says, um, the people of my country learned long ago that those without swords can still die upon them. In the films, however, uh, that line comes during her uh, conversation with Aragorn, and she says, the women of this country 
learned long ago that those without swords can still die upon them. Um, and they're also in very different contexts because in uh, the film, uh, her and Aragorn are chatting and she's talking about the, she has her cage line um, and she talks about not, you know, feeling great about gender roles. Whereas in the books, uh, that line comes in the context of uh, her, uh, you know, already being a warrior and her and the warden kind of having this back and forth about whether or not her like vainglory and her desire to be a warrior is actually something that is like productive or good for her. Um, anyways, all of this to say the, the films have a more overt conversation, uh, going within them about gender. Um, and so given that they bring in, uh, the like gender ambiguity of dwarvish women, um, with something as like viscerally gendered as a beard. Um, I think it would have been interesting to have shown that moment beyond just being kind of played for comedic effect and um, have some sort of impact on Eowyn. Um, and I'm not saying like she needs to like cut her hair and turn it into a beard like Abe Lincoln style, but, but to show that like that recognition of like the fluidity or the ambiguity of gender does something for her because she's obviously someone who is like, it has like quite an intense and, and I would say probably quite a painful relationship to her gender. Uh, uh, I would like to have seen something more made of that. And this is obviously not anything to do with Gimli, but it is a brilliant moment with Gimli. So I just, I just wanted to bring it up here. Um, and I also encourage everybody to thoroughly subscribe to the, uh, Dwarvish women have beards take. Oh, I definitely do. Um, <laughs> So the next part is going to be a little less uh, positive um, because there's a very popular moment in the Helm's Deep battle where uh, Aragorn and uh, Gimli are trying to clear the causeway uh, to give Theoden some more time, uh, but the gap is too big for Gimli to jump. So he says, toss me, and it's pretty much played for comedic effect and, you know, ha-ha, they're tossing the dwarf. But I think we need to talk about how dwarf tossing is actually a serious problem in the world. And I want to highlight uh, the aforementioned Peter Dinklage, who played Tyrion Lannister in A Game of Thrones. When he won his 2012 Golden Globe for that role, um, he basically, his acceptance speech was basically Google the name Martin Henderson, and that was basically it. Uh, Martin Henderson was a dwarf who was uh, tossed. Um, I think he would, they were out at a bar in England at some point, and because of just the way he was tossed, um, he ended up with a fractured arm, and whether he would be able to walk again was very unsure. Um, it's a really kind of fucked up thing to do, um, but it was, you know, kind of been played for laughs, both in pop culture and in just normal culture um, for a long time until awareness has kind of started to uh, crop up around that. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and one of the people that I would like to draw some attention to is Leah Smith, who's with the uh, Center for Disability Rights um, and who is herself, uh, she calls herself a member of the dwarfism community. Um, and she's long been advocating against this sort of bullshit. Um, and she's got a really uh, good, like, brief overview online dealing from dating to like 2012, dealing with uh, a hospitality company that announced that they were hosting a dwarf tossing competitions in two of their bars after popular interest uh, in, in dwarf tossing, essentially assault of other human beings, uh, picked up after there were a couple scenes in The Wolf of Wall Street that that did it. And like on the face of it, it's just obviously fucking insane. Um, and anybody who wants to emulate what goes on in The Wolf of Wall Street is like obviously deeply fucking depraved anyways. But like, I do think that that kind of underscores the fact that... Um, you know, we need to be questioning why this scene even needed to be included at all. Like, like, what does it really add to the narrative of the story? Um, and what does it say about, like, our cultural sense of humor that this was something that they thought was, like, appropriate or good or helpful to include? 
Yeah. And uh, not to be even more of a downer, but uh, what I was referencing for the Peter Dinklage stuff, uh, Martin Henderson did end up passing away a couple years later in 2016. So not necessarily directly from the injuries, but he definitely did not have a great quality of life following that. So um, unfortunate. And I think we should all be cognizant that as much as the films play this for laughs, it's absolutely a horrible thing to do or to partake in or watch. (laughs) <laughs> trying to transition to a lighter note, um, one of the better parts that uh, crops up in Helm's Deep is the contest that he has with Legolas uh, for killing orcs, and this will continue on into the Battle of Pelennor Fields. This is not a film invention, which I thought could have been possible the first times I saw these movies, um, but it is, in fact, something that they do uh, play up in the book as well. This is a smaller moment, but, you know, speaks to my heart, (laughs) is that when uh, the hunters and Gandalf and Theoden arrive at Isengard at the beginning of Return of the King, uh, Gimli is instantly jealous of Merry and Pippin smoking and eating because, you know, that's a mood. Um, I'm always jealous of people getting high and having the salted pork. Uh, So uh, there's that. Um, We talked about uh, taking the paths of the dead a lot earlier, especially in the extended editions. Uh, But I do like the part preceding that uh, when Aragorn is choosing to go into the Paths of the Dead. Uh, What's it called? The The Dwimmerdine? The the Dwimmerdine, that's it. Um, I do like how uh, Legolas and Gimli kind of push themselves like, we're going with you. And uh, Gimli says, deal with it, laddie. We're going with you to get a little (laughs) bit of that Scottish flavor in there. But I just, um, regardless of the words, I like that kind of um, unfailing commitment and loyalty to Aragorn shown by Gimli and Legolas in that moment. Um, And then later on in the Pass of the Dead, when they're actually talking um, to the Ghost King, which I'll call him for lack of a better term right now, um, I like the Gimli's line about how they had no honor in life. They have none now in death. Nice, nice. Good rendition. Yeah, I'll work on my Gimli impression uh, (laughs) as we go through these uh, films. And then we've kind of alluded to some his other two big moments in the films. Uh, the still counts as one line regarding the Oliphant and then fighting side by side with Legolas at the Black Gate. So we can talk about the actor under the stone helm of Gimli, John Rhys Davies. This won't be nearly as joyous as our Sean Bean retrospective since Rhys Davies is the political opposite of the Boromir actor. I guess we can get that crap out of the way first because it's just not fun to discuss or think about too much and it's already been a bit of a downer episode. He was supposedly a leftist back in the 70s but was converted by Margaret Thatcher which makes me think he was not much of a leftist. (laughs) Arisa Davies pretty much supports every right-wing cause and belief out there even though he tries to fashion himself as a rationalist in the way a lot of U.S. libertarians do. He's praised the effect of Christian civilization on the world and has repeatedly voiced concerns about troubling demographic trends in Europe, which is a generous way to say he hates how many Muslims there are. He has also supported Brexit and had come to the defense of Donald Trump, which, you know, this is all bad. (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, yeah, he's a political nightmare. Um, I want to quote real quick from what is maybe the funniest and most revealing sentence ever written on wikipedia and like absolutely cheers to the editor who put these two together for like maximum comedic effect um but this is from obviously from john reese davis's wikipedia page and the section concerning his personal views quote 
Rhys Davies is a self-described rationalist and skeptic when it comes to religion. However, he holds Christianity in high regard and has stated, Christian civilization has made the world a better place than it ever was. <sighs> that is just massive tell me you're racist without telling me you're racist vibes. Um, but don't worry, he does actually also tell us a racist. Uh, and here is the fucking batshit quote. There is a demographic catastrophe happening in Europe that nobody wants to talk about, that we daren't bring up because we are so cagey about not offending people racially, and rightly we should be, but there is a cultural thing as well. By 2020, 50% of the children in Holland under the age of 18 will be of Muslim descent, uh, which is like just the most, like, what the fuck are you, like, what are you on about? Why do you care? Like, what a fucking weirdo. Anyways, uh, his comments were endorsed by the British National Party, um, and for those who are un like not unfortunate those who are fortunate enough to not be aware of them uh the bnp are like a deeply fucking depraved party of the political right in britain um i like i think th the only way to like really describe it is like homegrown blue red and white nationalism and um, they're like out and out fascists they're just absolutely fucking heathenous rat bastards and like to give you like a valuable and deeply upsetting insight into what britain is like right now in the 2010 general election, they racked up nearly 600,000 votes in a country that only has 42.5 million people eligible to vote. So it's just like mind-bogglingly evil. Anyways, uh, John Rhys Davis obviously went and played the I'm so sad the BNP would put me on their leaflets thing in the press. Uh, but then like last year, I think some continued to say some insane bullshit about Christianity being like the light of the West in opposition to Islam and then said some more like insane shit, like how the West stood for democracy, the abolition of slavery, equality and tolerance, which is just uh, not anybody's experience with the West, really. Um, he also went on the BBC's Question Time, which is a, a program that I think can best be described as uh, the Tories who run the BBC scheduling the loudest, most drool-covered morons in Britain in British politics to sit on a stage and good-naturedly agree with one another about how Jeremy Corbyn should be taken out back and shot like a dog for being a Soviet spy or whatever the fuck. Um, Anyways, so he goes on this aspect and yells, oh, woman, <laughs> Caroline Lucas, who was the then leader of the Green Party of England and Wales, when she was like performatively denouncing Trump or whatever useless garbage the English Greens were up to in 2019. And obviously he was a real prick for like having yelled at her, whatever, whatever. But <laughs> and without getting too far into one of my favorite political hobby horses, um, it was an incident that does rather fascinatingly encapsulate the ills of British politics generally, which is that he was bitched at for raising his voice and being rather gently a misogynist instead of bitched at for being an enormous racist and fascist enabler. Um, and remember, folks, in Britain, it is always worse to be a little uncouth than it is to endorse genocide. Cue Royal Britannia. Oh man, I should have got that sound clip for <laughs> uh, to separate out the next part. But we'll try to from that. And I don't want to elide or downplay anything of what Emily just went over. She just knows the British politics a little better than I do. <laughs> um, but that's awful. Obviously, the polar opposite of what Emily and I believe. Um, but we don't want to elide any of that stuff as we talk about this cast um, and their work. So Trying to uh, pivot over to his actual career, uh, Reese Davies has been prolific over the years in the realm of film, television, and video games. He has several voice acting credits to his name as well, which applies equally to the Lord of the Rings films as it does his career. Some of those voice acting credits include Macbeth from the 90s classic cartoon Gargoyles, and he was also the voice of Thor in various Marvel shows at the time, namely The Fantastic Four and The Incredible Hulk. 
He's been in a lot of films and movies, so I'm just going to mention the ones I am most familiar with. First and foremost, there is Sala from Indiana Jones, specifically Raiders of the Last Ark and The Last Crusade. He had a strong screen rapport with Harrison Ford in these scenes and is a critical source of local intelligence. Not sure how he felt about playing an Egyptian, though. <laughs> Indeed. There is something that troubles me. What is it? The Ark. If it is there, Tanis, then it is something that man was not meant to disturb. Death has always surrounded it. It is not of this earth. John also started one of my favorite James Bond movies, and one that is fairly unheralded, The Living Daylights, the first of two Timothy Dalton 007 movies. I won't spoil that movie, as I'm hoping that this spurs people to seek it out, but he plays a KGB agent whose path crosses with 007. Speaking to a stint on Lord of the Rings, Reese Davies initially auditioned for the role of Denethor, which could have been a tremendous change. Along those lines, Orlando Bloom also auditioned for Faramir, which would be the literal opposite relationship than the one Legolas and Gimli formed on the battlefield. Yeah, I'll let Emily just chew on that one all, all oh week God. until we record again. <laughs> my brain just melted. <laughs> Reese Davis... <laughs> Reese Davies, funnily enough, is the tallest actor of the fellowship at six foot one, making his casting as the dwarf slightly humorous. It wasn't all fun and games in New Zealand for him, though. The makeup and prosthetics he wore as Gimli caused Reese Davies to break out with violent reactions to the point of swelling his eyes shut. A lot of his scenes had to be spaced out over the shooting schedule so he could go days at a time without being in makeup. It supposedly took five hours for him just to get ready to shoot. For these reasons, he did not return for the Hobbit films, though Gimli probably wouldn't have been a major part of those even if he had reprised his role. And circling back to his voice acting, he also provided the voice of Treebeard, the ant we meet in the Two Towers. Tree? I am no tree. I am an ant. Treeherder? A shepherd of the forest? Don't talk to it, Mary. Don't encourage it. Treebeard, some call me. And that's probably all I have on John Reese davies Do you have anything you want to add to that, Emily? Uh, I do not, um, except for the uh, everybody who listens to this should immediately go look up the uh, Battle of Cable Street and understand why uh, the BNP are so desperately fucking evil and why uh, John Reese davies can go do one. And on that note... That closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and all the other projects I've been working on. And hey, Manuclear Bomb, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, and you can catch me saying even more deranged things on Twitter at JRR Tweeting. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. <laughs>